Hey, go ahead and make your, your way back to a chair. Listen, I know that might be weird for some of you, not really knowing exactly how to interact with something that we could just broadly call a spiritual attack, okay? Um, I grew up in that type of language, and I grew up in that type of thinking, and it wasn't always the healthiest way of looking at it. I've been in other avenues of Christendom where they just ignore it all together. I don't think the, that either <laughs> ditch is a good one to be in for very long. So I, I, I think it is going to be helpful for us to understand what that means. It might even mean a sermon or two here in the near future where we could just doctrinally walk through what some of that means. I think it's probably a good time to do something like that. And then maybe give applications for whenever you see it in your own household or your own life. So thanks for bearing with us. And please continue to lift us as a church. But listen, if you brought your Bibles, I'd love to jump in. We're going to be in Psalm 69 today. It's a real interesting psalm. I've been looking forward to teaching this one for quite a while. And if you have not been here or you've only come once or twice, we are currently working our way through a series called Anthem, which is just a look at the psalms. It's kind of a, a peer through a lot of the different psalms, how the poets will speak to God. And we get to see, and by the way, the reason we call it Anthem is because anthems typically connect to us on a very um, deep, creative, emotional, and imaginative level. It expresses how we feel, it forms how we think and what we do, and Really, all 150 psalms are, in fact, in and of themselves, anthems. And typically when I've been doing these and going from different psalm to different psalm, I've looked really hard to find a contemporary anthem, a song that we sing today, a song that kind of expresses and forms the very same emotion, the very same expression that the psalm is that we're going to look at. And I had the greatest of intentions to find one today, but there are far too many. I couldn't land on one. I was actually shocked how many hit songs we have that are imprecatory songs. That's a new word for some of you, right? Imprecatory. To imprecate. To imprecate, we'll put it up on the screen if you have it. To imprecate is to call down curses or invoke destruction. Here's a couple examples of what, this is me yesterday on I-40. You're a dirty dog for not using your signal. I hope that trooper gets you, right? Now, had I put more words up there, it had said comma, but only if I get to see it happen, right? Only if I get to see the trooper pull you over. That would be an imprecation. That would be me imprecating him. Here's one that King David would do. May a creditor get all they own and other people get to enjoy their stuff. That's in our language today, but that's right out of Psalm 109, right? It's imprecation. It's calling down some sort of destruction. It's a kind of lament. It's a demand for justice is what it is. Mixed with a, a longing and a hope that wrongs would be righted. So it, it kind of makes sense that so many hit songs are imprecatory, right? Think of all the bitterness that we carry through a life. Something an old coach said to us. Something a bully did to us all through middle school. Something that an ex did to us. Something that a bad parent did to us. And we kind of get bitterness, and it accumulates like steam in a steam pot. Now pretend if that's you and you're a musician, right? And they hand you a mic and a global audience, and you finally get to put that person on blast. Vindication is yours, right? I mean, justice is yours, and you get to make money off of it, even better. It's a, the twist of the knife right there. I think the first time I realized how prevalent this phenomenon of imprecatory music is that we listen to today was in spin class. Does that sound odd? 
Spin class 2005, if you've never been in a spin class, it's a unique setting you won't find anywhere else in the world. It's where piles of strangers go into a dark room, right, with other strangers, and you get on a bike, catch this, it's not going anywhere, right? You're getting on a bike that's not going anywhere where an instructor's gonna come in and for 45 minutes, she is going to yell at you and tell you how fast to pedal that bike into nowhere, right? All to the soundtrack of her choosing. All to the soundtrack of the spin instructor's choosing. I keep saying her because just like yoga, 70% of spin instructors are actually female. In fact, I think that number is pretty low because I've been doing it for quite a while and I've had one in about 13 years. I've had one guy. So what that means is, is when I go into a spin class, I know I'm not going to get any Metallica. I'm not going to get any Run DMC. There's a lot of music I'm not going to get. I'm not going to get any Johnny Cash. I'm not going to get any old rock. I'm going to get something very, very different, right? Their class, their music. So it only took a handful of classes to realize how much of the soundtracks were angry girl music. Girl rock, revenge rock, right? Because nothing will make you spin like imprecatory music, right? Someone did a girl wrong, she's singing about it, and the whole class is on board, man. They're peddling, sweating everywhere. It's not just for spinning. When I was two years old, Gloria Gaynor came out with the song, I Will Survive. It's been covered by everybody, it feels like, right? She says, I should have changed that stupid lock. I should have made you leave your key. If I'd known for just one second, you'd be back to bother me. Interesting. You know, Beyonce actually points to that song and says that's what was the influence on her building the song Irreplaceable, which she sings towards a cheater. We've heard Carrie Underwood do the same thing. That song, Before He Cheats, is where she totally destroys a guy's car, totally destroys his vehicle because he's a cheater. Kelly Clarkson, I feel like three out of four of her songs are imprecatory. Alanis Morissette, Pink, Taylor Swift. I mean, if you don't believe me, just Google it. Google revenge rock or angry girl music, right? And what you will get is the playlist for any average spin class right there on your screen. Now, it's not just women, it's men too. NF does this. Eminem was just sued recently because he actually stuck a bully's name in one of his songs. <laughs> he just stuck the guy's name in the song, and the guy sued him, and he didn't even care. It was just worth it to him. You see, men will sing about getting justice and vindication, but it's always going to be a story about somebody else doing it, like a boy named Sue from Johnny Cash, if you're a Johnny Cash person, or Kenny Rogers, the coward of the county. It's always a story, like a narrative of somebody getting justice finally. But when a woman sings it, it's always personal. Why do you think that's the case? I think it's pretty obvious. I looked out of a, several different lists of the top revenge songs, the top imprecatory ballads that we have in recent history, 73.8% of them are from females. They're not more wicked than men, they're just more oppressed, and now they have a stage to settle the score. It's personal, and why not? Why not use that as an opportunity, right? I mean, it's in all of us to do something. This is why you always said to yourself, boy, if I was the president, if I was at Daylight Savings, gone. If I was the president, if I was the president, we'd go to an eight-game playoff system tomorrow. I don't know what all the talk is about, right? If I was the president, this. If I was the president, but what we're saying is, is if I could have power beyond what I have now, I could get stuff done. What they're saying is, is I could get even. I could get even. 
I was joking with my wife about this yesterday. I always felt like after spin classes, I need to go around and apologize to all the women for being a man. I'm sorry, guys can be dirty dogs, you know. I mean, that'd be weird. I would never do that. You don't just go around and do that. But I always feel like that, you know. So today, we have one of the heaviest imprecatory psalms in the Bible. I mean, 109 is pretty rough, but Psalm 69 is different. And it's also one of the most quoted psalms we have in the Bible. This is David's version of Revenge Rock right here. This Psalm 69, and we have all felt it. He is going, as you see, he's going to be attacked while he's vulnerable. He's going to scan the crowd looking for comfort. He's going to find mockery instead. He's going to be falsely accused of things he did not do. He's going to have contempt thrown upon his shoulders when that contempt was aimed somewhere else originally. He's going to cry for vindication. He's going to cry out for justice. He's not going to find any of it immediately. So let's look in Psalm 69. We're going to go and walk through it just together as a church. I'm going to start in verse 1. We're going to pause just after a moment. But this is going to be a very helpful word for us today. It's going to show us Jesus, I think, incredibly clear today. This is the word of God for us, a psalm of David. Verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let's just pause just for one second. What we can see very clearly in the text is that David is drowning. And for every reach for safety, he sinks even further. He feels oppressed from every corner by men that he feels like are stronger than him. I mean, this passage to me, it describes the very center of vulnerability, the very middle of it of vulnerability, being overexposed, which is just part of our human experience. Everyone in this room, it's not a matter of whether or not you will feel exposed or vulnerable. You are doing it. It's just timing when and how much. We are all just a very, very vulnerable people. I mean, some of you, you walked in here like this today, just like what we just described in those five verses. And every attempt of you to try to get out of this vulnerable place where you feel attacked is just sinking you further in, down to your knees. It's getting worse. And apparently, David's being accused of something he didn't do, some sort of a theft, it looks like. So he's vulnerable, wrongly accused, and very tired. Very tired. Tired of being attacked, tired of praying, just tired. Bailing eyes, parched throat. By this, this is probably a different sermon, but this is the endowment that comes with leadership. This is leadership. I mean, our poet is a king here. We can say that. But we are all called to lead in various arenas. You're called to lead yourself. Called to lead your family. You're called to lead your drunk neighbor. You're called to lead at the workplace. Some of you, you have businesses. You're called to lead those. You, anywhere you, you have influence and responsibility, those are places that you are called to lead. It's a mantle that you have. I like how Dan Allender says it. He wrote a book called Leading with a Limp. He states that in leadership, Christian leadership, our enemies will most typically outnumber our allies. I think David says it well here when he says, my enemies out, outnumber the, the hair on my head. I've noticed this. I agree. 
I think a life without conflict, it seems like a nice life, at least to me, but it's definitely not a Jesus-shaped life. It's not a Christ-shaped life, right? We see this in John 15. Stay where you're at. But in John 15, Christ says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. You see, living a Jesus-shaped, Christ-formed life of leadership will place you in vulnerable places where broken people will do broken things to you. This is just what it means to be a leader. People are going to hate what you say. They're going to hate what you do. They will have a problem with God, God, and they will take their problem with God, and they will place it on you. You're the next best thing as a leader, as a Christian leader, right? I think this is important for us, this little side trail that we're taking in this passage, because I think, at least I think, I'm tempted to think that it's possible to lead firmly in a biblical way without conflict. That you could do it and not have conflict. In fact, I'm actually tempted to think that if there's conflict all around me in my leadership, then I must be doing something wrong, probably messing it up. When I sit down with calm group leaders, if you're a, a calm group leader in the room or a host or a co-leader, I mean, this is the number one thing I hear. I hear this Gosh, I mean, we got, we've got conflict in our group. I just feel like I'm screwing it up, Luke. I'm super sorry I'm screwing this church up for you. And I'm like, bro, you're doing great. You're doing great. This is exactly what we're looking for. This is fantastic. I'm excited to hear this. I mean, just consider the cross where the greatest leader who ever lived suffered attacks by broken people for something he did not do as he looks around towards a crowd where he could have found comfort but found mockery instead. We see a very similar story, right? He looked weak to the world, but he was in his strongest form. That's why, we, that's why we're so quick to hear Paul say later on, hey, listen, when I am at my weakest, when I am at my most failed and there's conflict all around me, that's actually when I'm at my strongest. That's when I'm at my strongest. I think this is important because I think some of you are trying to lead broken situations with broken people and you're catching flack. You're catching flack for it. Welcome to the club. Welcome to leadership. Those speed bumps you're hitting, those are not indictments of bad leadership. They are the receipts of good Christian leadership. You're going to get it. It's going to happen. And then I think some of us in the room, we don't have any conflict in our life at all. None. You know what I'm going to say. I, I think you're probably enabling those around you more than you're leading those around you, right? That might be an indictment. And again, that's a different sermon altogether. In fact, let's just go ahead and jump right back on. But what I want you to carry out of that is that he has enemies that are outnumbering his allies. He has a lot of conflict. It's not a very good season for him right now. Look in verse 6. Verse 6. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. That dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal, 
for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth for clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. So we're seeing a little bit of a shift here. It's, it's getting more complicated, this song. David's concern is not really self-fixated now. He's not just focused on himself right here. He's concerned about what others think about God because of what's happening to him. That's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, don't let people get an idea of who you are by looking at me. I'm not very good advertising right now. I'm not making you look good. And this sounds like a weird thing to hear, but I mean, haven't you ever, in the midst of all of your various trials, kind of hope that people wouldn't ask if you were a Christian or not? Whether bad things are being done to you or you're doing bad things, one way or the other, have you ever in your heart hoped that the person next to you did not ask if you went to church, were a Christian, loved Jesus? It's interesting, isn't it? You see, when I feel shame or bitterness or I'm being attacked, I don't always feel like the poster child of God's grace and I think sometimes we look bad, sometimes we act bad, and we just don't want people to associate us with a very good and beautiful God. We just hope that people don't draw a direct line between us and our sad state to God and his glory. But I will tell you, your suffering and your repentance is actually a better platform and exhibition of the gospel than your perfection. Than your perfection. I think we feel like we need to be perfect before people know that we associate with someone as good as God. Sometimes it's in our brokenness and in our repentance and in our suffering that they get a much better view of who God is. We also see that not only are they watching him come apart and making judgments about God, they themselves, as enemies of David, have judgments against God, but they're not throwing them on God, they're throwing them on David. Whatever their struggle is with God, they're redistributing it. They're putting it on his shoulders. How many times have you felt like you've absorbed blows for something that had nothing to do with you? That happens. You catch it, and you're like, whoa, whoa. You know I'm not that person, right? What about when it's God? Has it happened? Have you become a pinata for somebody who has a deep, riveted struggle with God? But listen, you're, you're the next best emblem. You're the, you're the logo. So you'll do in that moment. You'll be the stand-in. This is what's happening. Let's look at verse 13 and keep walking. But as for me... David says, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love. Answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O God, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make no haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Okay, 
David is not sparing the dramatic. You can accuse him of a lot of things. You cannot accuse him of being emotionally shut down in his writing, right? He's not sparing us of anything. He is suffering a hellish season, and yet it's a partial feeling of it. Christ felt it on a cosmic level. Jesus felt what he's describing, yet felt it on a cosmic level. You know, because just to read David here, it sounds like the opening lines and opening riffs to just another angry revenge song to me. And certainly David has a reason to sing it, right? But it's Christ who owns the rights to a song like this, and he actually fulfills it 1,000 years later. He comes along a millennia later and fulfills it. Jesus, a better son of David and a better king, would show his zeal for God's house by carrying the reproaches that we have for God on his own shoulders. Jesus, a better son of David and a better king, would be attacked and abandoned by those who should have been his friends. A consolation. Jesus, a better son of David and a better king, was accused of something he did not do, and he was even mocked by his passion for God. Jesus, our hero, was ultimately exposed and ultimately vulnerable to a degree that David himself could not even put words to. You see, a psalm like this, and we've really worked hard in every single psalm to draw your eyes to Christ, because if you can't read a psalm like this through a Christological prism, through the prism of the gospel, then what do you walk out of here with? I mean, let's just be honest for a second. What do you do with Psalm 69 if Christ isn't in the middle of it? If he's not fulfilling it? This is what you walk out with. David's really sad. He's hurting a bunch. He's got a bunch of enemies. He wants God to get them. He somehow is praying at the end, have a nice week. What do you do with that? We don't do much with it. That's why we don't do much with it. Paul saw this. Paul actually reaches back into history and resources this material by the power of the Holy Spirit because we see in Romans 15, he's speaking to a young church, and he says, Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. What's going on here? What's going on? Paul is connecting the dots. He's saying Psalm 69 is far more than just about Psalm 69. Christ is not making a cameo in this song. This song is all about him, even down to the details. Did some of you catch at the very, very last moment, right there in verse 21? It connects to John 19. After this, it says in John 19, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Man, this is fascinating. It's here that our hero rescuer and better priest and better king in Christ understands bitterness. He was tempted to be bitter. He was vulnerable when he was attacked for something he didn't do. He was tempted to be bitter. You see, we forget that. We, we think that we're bitter and it's something that Christ wouldn't understand. Read the whole book of Hebrews. It's about the fact that he is a better priest. He was tempted as you were tempted. When you feel bitterness come up, he understands it. So God is speaking to us through David, certainly, to express how you feel as a bitter people, how I feel as a bitter man, and then to form us at the same time, to form us at the same time, and to draw our eyes to Jesus. Now, if that's the text, why is this important? Why does this even matter? 
You know, I think when broken people in broken situations do very broken things to us, this, I find personally, is where I am quick to fumble the football, right? This is when I'm quick to make mistakes. I have an opportunity when I'm feeling bitterness coming up. I have an opportunity to suffer as Jesus did and to share that suffering with Jesus. Or I can do what I'm tempted to do is return jabs. That's typically what I do. It's the same thing you're tempted to do. Take a jab, throw a jab. Take a jab, throw a jab. Take a hit, give a hit. Get even. Get vindication. Right the wrong. Get some justice. That's what I want to do. This is why I don't like anymore. I don't like angry girl rock, but I get it. I understand it. I do the same thing. You see, how we handle contempt when it's shoveled upon us, how we handle contempt shows how satisfied we are with God and God's story for us and then the freedom that comes because of God's good story for us. Because whether we're aggressive or passive, we fail by wanting that justice and that vindication by our hands on our schedule. We want it when we want it, how we want it. Releasing that bitterness not really part of the plan. Not really part of the plan. We read things on the, in the Bible that says God's justice will always prevail. And we believe it, but we kind of like halfway believe it because we still slander and we still gossip and we still blast them on Facebook. We still do all the things that say, I want justice and vindication on, on my scale, though. I, I want to be a part of it. I want to see it happen. I want, I want it to happen the way I want it to happen. You see, vengeance, what it will translate to you and convince you of is that you will feel whole again if you return fire. That's what vengeance wants you to do. You've been wronged, you were vulnerable, you were hurt, you were attacked for something you might not have even done. Maybe you looked for comfort and you got mockery instead. You find yourself right in the middle of Psalm 69. You're here and what vengeance will come and do is whisper in your ear, go ahead, now's your shot. Now's your shot, you will feel so much better. If you just say that thing, if you do that thing, if you take control of this and make vengeance yours and not God's, you'll feel whole again. You'll be integrated. It's tricky. You'll feel so much better. This is what God says. I'm going to read from Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine I will repay, says the Lord. I believe that, but I don't want to believe it. Because God, if I leave vindication to you, then it won't satisfy me. If I let you do it, then I won't be content. You're ripping me off. Because you'll do it super slow, or you'll get them back, and I won't even know about it. I won't get to see it. I won't get to experience it. I'm just supposed to trust that to you after what they did to me? I don't know about that. You see, we just fail to trust God's justice. We, we don't trust that it's going to unfold in judgment or that it found a seat on the cross. So we just keep the bitterness inside. Bitterness is us not being satisfied with how God handles justice. That's just natural for us. That's how we come out of the womb. It's actually a supernatural movement for us to trust God with that. Anything else is supernatural. To release bitterness to God, that's a supernatural thing. Friends, you're never going to be able to do that without the power of the Holy Spirit. It's just not going to happen, ever. 
Without the Holy Spirit, we're all pretty much doomed to be a bitter people skulking around looking for moments where our enemies finally let their guard down so we could finally get them back. Right? So here are the big diagnostic questions for you. Who are you most bitter with right now? People group, person, parent, ex, maybe your current spouse. Who is it for you? Let me help you if you're having a hard time. It's going to be that person that whenever you hear other people talking about in a positive way, you are really fighting that urge to pull some pins from some grenades and throw it into that conversation and let everybody know that that person is not who they think he is, right? It's that person. It's hard for you to even think of their name without like a bitter taste coming up in your mouth. Every now and then you look them up on Facebook and hope that they're doing horrible. Why? Because you were exposed and you were vulnerable and they hurt you. You thought they were an ally and they handed you sour wine instead. They have an issue with God ultimately, but you'll do just fine. They'll push that contempt on you. If you're not sure who this person is yet, it's the one that you cannot bear the thought of them flourishing or being happy. You don't think it's right if that's what happens. It's also that person that you can only forgive for about six minutes at a time. Forgiveness comes hard. You forgive them and you find the very next Sunday you got to forgive them over and over again and over and over again. And a month later you're forgiving them and a year later you're forgiving them. It's just hard. It's hard. Now here's the truth for you and me. This heart's cry for justice and vindication that comes up in us, that's a godly imprint. This cry for wrongs to be righted is part of God's image in you. If we are created truly in God's image, just consider the echo of that image in us as broken as we are, that wrongs would not continue to be wrong, that justice would always come. That, that's in you just by virtue of the fact that you are made in God's image. Where sin comes, where sin blooms, is where we demand that it happens on our time, in our way, where we can see it. That's where it's a problem. So look at what David does next. Okay, This is where he goes a little bit bananas. This is the angry part of his angry song. Look at verse 22 in the same psalm. He says, Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see. And make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to the punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Man, okay, this is a struggle for a lot of people, right? I mean, certainly for me, I mean, if, if, if I was just reading this for the first time, and some of you might be, I would just naturally, from background knowledge I have of David, get to a point like this and just expect him to cry out for forgiveness for his accusers instead of this. I would just have expected, maybe it's wrong, I would have just expected David to say, man, they did me wrong, but you know what, God, you've been so good to me, we'll just call it a wash. It's cool. I mean, it stinks, but it's cool, you know? That's what I was kind of expecting, something a little bit more like that. Didn't get it. I got a different kind of David here. 
you might not know exactly how to interpret a passage like this, but you certainly know the emotion from which it comes from. You get that. And don't act like you've never prayed like this. Let's be honest. I think that is an honest prayer. I've started a ton of prayers like this, knowing eventually I will get to the gospel. It's helpful for me to just be honest and be open. God, I'm ticked. I'm ticked. I'd rather you just blast them. Get them out of my way. They're hurting me. They're hurting my family. They're hurting the church. They're hurting my friends. They're hurting, 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 hurting. And all they're doing is just prospering. Why don't you just wipe them out? And I'm so angry. Now, why am I allowed to say something like that? Because I'm feeling it? Because it's here? He already knows? God already knows I'm fighting through this? But I'm able to get to a place, and we should be able, as a church, to get to a place where we go from get them to gospel, where we are able to pivot a little bit, where we move from imprecation to the fact that Jesus took our contempts upon his own shoulder, and we get to a place where we're satisfied in God, and we get to a place where we're able to let go, and all of this, like I said earlier, is a supernatural movement, something that is given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, is it wrong for David to feel this way, just feel? No, not really. It's not wrong for him to feel this way. He sees injustice. He sees wrongs not being corrected. His concern is for God's glory and God's justice. And yeah, it's personal too. But his anger is fueled by the zeal for God's glory. But he lands the plane well, as we're going to see here in a minute. He lands well. He releases his vindication. This is key in an imprecatory psalm, right? Because for you and me, imprecation, it looks very different than what it does with David here. But it also looks very similar at the same time. And this is why it's confusing to people. An imprecatory song from your heart is where you're able to state where people have wronged you, and then in the same sweeping movement, you're able to say, but God, I I give it to you, and I'm just going to take my hands off of it. I'm going to release my demand for vindication I'm going to release my demand for justice. I'm going to release my demand. I'm going to hand it to you for you to do whatever you want to do with it. Yes, they hurt me. Yes, Jesus took hurts for me. But yes, I'm finding myself satisfied in you. And really, the heartbeat of an an imprecatory psalm is the singer, the songer, the, the, the poet here that we see here. It's that person saying, God, but you were better than getting justice. Justice is great, but you were better. So we turn our anger over to God as he sees fit. It's confidence and trust that he is going to do what is right. It's taking our hands off of it. You see, David wanted justice, and Jesus fulfills it a millennium later, for not just himself, but for mankind. David wanted death of his enemies for God's glory. Jesus became an enemy for us for God's glory and for your good, too. And again, if we miss this, we miss Jesus in this psalm. We miss the whole psalm. What's the point of, I mean, really, what's the point? But Christ, he did something beautiful, didn't he? He carried our reproaches out of zeal for the glory of his Father, for your good. He was zealous for his Father's house. And he carried our contempts to the cross on his very own shoulders. Let's look to see how he finishes this in verse 30. He says, I will praise the name of God with a song, and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. 
You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. So we're being led. That's called a doxology, by the way, at the very end. And he's leading us out of our bitterness, out of our grief, into a relationship where we're satisfied with God even beyond just getting, getting ours, getting our comeuppance, getting our justice. You see, this demand that you have for vindication with whoever it is, this demand you have for personal justice is too heavy for you to carry. You weren't meant to carry that. And that's why it's tearing you apart. That's why you've held it since middle school. That's why you've held it for so many years. It's too heavy for your shoulders. That demand for justice. That's not something for mere mortals. That's not something for us. Matthew 11, it says this. Christ speaking to you today, on this day. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen, this is not just talking about the labor that we spend trying to earn something from God. This is also talking about the yoke that we put on our shoulders because of broken things that broken people have done for us where we are still demanding justice. But because of what God has done, you're free. You're free from the need. You're free to let that go. You're free to... Not hold on to that contempt and bitterness. Of course you're free to be angry. You're free to pray angry. You're, you're free to be upset because of what was done that was not fixed right before your eyes. You're, you're free to do that. And you're also free to thank Jesus that he answered that demand for justice. Free to do that as well. You're free not to return fire. Not to throw a jab when you get one. You're free not to demand vindication on your terms. You're free to forget, you're free to release, because our souls have rest. Let's look at Romans 12. I'm gonna flip there. I had this one on the maybe list. I think this is gonna be helpful for us though as we kind of walk our way out of this sermon. In Romans 12, I'm gonna jump into verse 14. There it is. Bless those who persecute you. This is what Paul is saying to the church. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You know, we don't just forgive other people and let go of our bitterness because we were forgiven. That's a true statement. We do do that, but that's not all we do. That's not just what's behind it. We also let go of our bitterness because God is better than our bitterness. Because God is better than vindication. He's just better. So let me ask you, how are you forgiving those who attacked you while you were vulnerable? The world sings songs about it, and the world resonates when they hear songs about it. 
because it's such a part of our human condition. But how are you doing on releasing it? And if you do release it, can you release it not because it's just the right thing to do, which it is, not just because the Bible says so, which it does, not just because the gospel is the story of that actually happening to you, which it is and which is fascinating to me, but also just because God is better than us getting justice. He is better. He's better. You see, vengeance doesn't want you to believe that. Vengeance is telling you that you will feel better if you just do that. That getting personal justice is better than God. That's what vengeance says. Right now, as we're talking about this, it's telling you don't do it. Don't forgive. You will never be whole if you do. Don't ever forgive. You'll never be whole. You'll never get that thing that you really want. That itch will never get scratched. But then I also see Christ saying, every reproach that I've carried against God has fallen upon him. Right? And then I see what a gospel form life looks like. Where God is better than my justice, so I can trust him. And I can let go of all bitterness. Friends, listen, this requires the Holy Spirit. Again, it's unnatural for us. It also requires constant attention, too. Right? As I said, it's not something that we overcome totally on this planet. When I say that some people, we have to forgive every six minutes, it's a joke and not really a joke. I mean, I have that too. Some people I'm able to forgive, but it's always kind of a shadow. It just kind of walks with me. A lot of reapplication for it. And go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to jump out of this. Because we're going to move into a different part of the just the gathering and Mark's going to come up and explain why it's important to us and how it should matter for you. But just before I pray and before he comes up, I just want to encourage you, encourage you that that feeling inside of you that screams for justice is, is not an ungodly thing to rise up. It is what has created revolutionaries it is what has created some of the most beautiful movements that we've ever seen on earth, this demand for justice. But when we take what we should be trusting to the Lord and make it our own terms, on our own terms, we've made it a sin. Right? It's bitterness. It's destroying you. It's killing you. God is here to take it, and he's trustworthy, and we can release it. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for being sweet to us. Very, very, very sweet. And I understand that I have reproaches. I have sins. I have anger and aggression against God. And that was Jesus' shoulders, and he took those things. I understand that the gospel is a very beautiful picture of Psalm 69, where a better king was vulnerable and susceptible and exposed and even overexposed up on a cross. Things he didn't even do, he was being accused of. Things he didn't even do were being placed on his shoulders. And as he looked for comfort, as he scanned the crowd, he got mockery back. He got sour wine. He got scowls. He got abandoned. And Father, when I look at this gospel story, I don't see a, I don't see a bitter king. I see one that trusted his father with justice. And was even that answer of justice himself. So Lord, as we meditate on this through song and through 
the elements in the back, as we, as we just do the things we do to respond to a word, help us in our hearts see who we've been bitter against, how we've had a hard time navigating this thing called bitterness, where we want vengeance. Lord, help us. And, we, and Lord, as I've said, we can't do this without your spirit, so give us your spirit. Give us your spirit to overcome this bitterness. And Lord, I know that there are people in here who are very far from you, and they don't have a walk with you. And all they've known is a life of bitterness. This is it. This is all they've known. To give, to give up something like that sounds like to give up an appendage almost, to give up a piece of your own self. So Lord, I pray that you would change their heart and show them how lovely and beautiful you are and how much more beautiful you are than even vengeance and justice itself. So Lord, we love you and we thank you. You're so kind and so good and benevolent to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.